0: doctors take field of greens for their own health here's dr ryan green to explain we're like you too much fast food not enough exercise that's why i take field of greens the fruits and vegetables in field of greens support my heart lungs kidneys and metabolism for weight loss and field of greens promises your doctor will notice your improved health or your money back. Get 15% off with promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. That's promo code HEALTH at fieldofgreens.com. Product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Shopify!
2: Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm very excited to have back on the show Dr. Scott Stevens. You may remember that a couple of episodes ago, we did an episode together on basic vent modes, and we are now back together to review some of the more advanced ventilator modes, and I think it's going to be really interesting. Scott, thanks so much for coming back. Oh, sure, Jed. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to go over, as I said, some of the kind of more complicated advanced vent modes. These aren't really modes that you're going to see much uh, with a couple of exceptions, but you're really not going to see much in the operating room, but you definitely will see these in the ICU. Now, Scott and I were talking about how uh, these have a variety of names. Uh, we'll try to give you some of the different, more popular names, at least in the United States, so that you know what you're seeing in case you come across them. We'll go through some modes. We'll talk about a little bit when you might use one of these modes and what some of the advantages are. And then we'll also just touch base uh, on something that's not a mode, but that we will, uh, you'll definitely see in the ICU, which is prone positioning. And we'll talk about how you might ventilate someone who's on ECMO. All right. Remember, you can go to the website at ACRAC.com, accra where you can download all the episodes and also leave us comments. Let us know if you use these modes and, if not, what else you may do when you're ventilating patients. All right. So, Scott, why don't we start by talking about uh, what I know as pressure control volume guarantee and you know by another name. And what's that? Which is PRVC, or
0: pressure-regulated
2: volume control.
0: And I think as before we get into this, I think one thing just to, as a caveat to all these modes, even though we often here and in common usage refer to them as advanced modes, that using saying advanced implies that they're better in some way. Mm-hmm. And. I'm not sure that that is the case with any of these modes. These are alternative modes. These are, common, these are commonly used alternative modes that, that you need to be aware of. But none of this is to suggest that any of these are better than the standard modes we talked about last week.
2: Absolutely. And I will put in the show notes uh, a link to a great review article uh, out of Cleveland Clinic um, by uh, an author whose last name is Mireles uh, Cabo de Villa, um, and uh, it's very well done, goes through a lot of these uh, interesting modes. But one of the points they make, as you've just said, Scott, is that uh, the evidence is scant for these modes being superior at all. There is maybe for ASV, which we'll get to, a couple of studies, certainly small studies, but that might suggest slightly improved weaning times in cardiac patients. But for the most part, uh, these modes have yet to um, be able to show through any kind of concrete evidence that they're superior. That said, since you may see them, we'll go through what they are and what the theoretical benefits might be. Right. So PRVC,
0: um, or pressure-regulated volume-controlled. So uh, this, is a, this is a mode that is, uh, essentially uses an adaptive pressure control mode to achieve a set tidal volume. So whereas in a volume control mode, a standard volume control mode, you set a tidal volume, and the machine delivers that essentially no matter what, in pressure-regulated volume control, you set both a volume target but then a pressure limit, and the machine then adjusts the pressure that it delivers in order to achieve the intended tar- targeted tidal volume.
2: Right. So what would be the advantage to that? Why would we want to use this mode over, let's say, a, a traditional uh, assist control volume regulated mode? Right. So the, I think the, I'm think i not sure there is any clear advantage to using
0: it. I think the biggest reason that people do like to use it is in the setting of high peak pressures. So on a traditional volume cycled mode, um, if you've got a lot of airway, airway resistance, um, that may result when you give a volume in a given flow uh, at a very high inspiratory airway peak pressure. With, and you know the the downsides of that are debatable. But if you want to avoid that, you could use a PRVC mode, and then you know the machine will not exceed whatever you set the pressure limit um, as, and then it will maintain whatever pressure you it needs to give for as long as it needs to give it to give you your
2: targeted tidal volume. Right now, this mode, uh, as you mentioned, also known as uh, adaptive pressure control. Uh, I believe, is uh, we think of what it's called, or that name has adaptive in it because, as you said, it's going to adapt the pressure that it gives to achieve the volume that you've asked it to achieve. That's right. Now, this would also allow it, in a way, to function as a weaning mode. Is that right? You could use it as that. I think it's relatively
0: rare to use this as that. But theoretically, because it's giving whatever pressure it needs to achieve a volume, if the person ends up doing more work on their own and it needs less pressure to give it, um, then it could be used as a weaning mode. I think most of the time people use it when... Um, Uh, when uh, the peak pressure alarm just keeps alarming. And this is one way to get the peak pressure alarm to not alarm because you will not exceed whatever your peak pressure threshold is.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the modes that is found in the operating room. Often uh, the newer ventilators will actually just default to this. And so, again, not that there's any reason you couldn't use AC uh, or SIMV, as we discussed those two modes in the last podcast on basic vent modes, but uh, some of the newer ventilators that have PRVC or PCVG will just default to it, and so often we end up using it only because we don't change it. there's probably no disadvantage. Would you agree with that
0: I think that's right I think there's no i don't think there's any disadvantage to using this mode. I suppose the one theoretical disadvantage is in the person who has who you have dramatically underestimated the severity of their lung disease and they are very noncompliant and have a lot of airway resistance um, you, it, it may conceivably be possible that given whatever pressure threshold you set that you can't actually get the tidal volume that you want, and so you can hypoventilate the patient.
2: That's right. So much like pressure control where you don't know your minute ventilation, uh, if you've set the uh, target or the limit of pressure too low, you may not get the minute ventilation you want. That's right. Great. Great. All right. And some other names uh, for this mode, in case you're out there wondering what uh, you're looking at, you might see auto flow, uh, adaptive pressure ventilation, volume control plus, and volume targeted pressure control. So those are all different names for the same uh, mode that we're talking about now. Um, and again, uh, in terms of evidence, Scott, would you agree? Not, not a whole lot out
0: there. Yeah, there really isn't. I think, I think there is this mistaken notion that because it is, quote, pressure regulated, that it is safer. Uh, that really isn't the case. Uh, I mean, high pressures are injurious, but there are other ways to limit pressure. Um, so I, I don't I don't use PRVC terribly much myself, but it is a mode, as you said, it's a very
2: commonly used mode. You should know about it and know how to use it. Absolutely. And so the settings for this, we already said, but let's just go over. Um, you're going to set the... Uh, maximum pressure that, you want, that will be allowed. You're Correct. going to set the tidal volume that you would like the machine to achieve, but it's not guaranteed because the pressure may not allow it to get there. That's right. It's a targeted tidal volume. You're going to set PEEP and FIO2 mm-hmm. and anything else? A respiratory rate. And a respiratory rate. Yeah. Right. And so, great. That's a good segue because uh, setting that respiratory rate is what's going to differentiate this mode uh, and the next mode that we'll touch base on, which is very similar, and that's volume support. Right, So, and I think that really is the big
0: differentiation. So volume support, whereas pressure support, as we talked about before, you prescribe a given inspiratory pressure, and it raises the machine raises the pressure in the circuit to that pressure with each breath. With volume support, the machine will raise the pressure, whatever it needs, to make sure the patient gets whatever volume you set for them. As you said, there's no respiratory rate, so there, um, if the patient doesn't make any effort, it's not going to give a breath. Um, but this is a way... I think of sometimes I have found that patients are more comfortable on volume support than on pressure support. And I don't have a good physiologic explanation for that. It's also a way potentially to mandate, um, some degree of minute ventilation. Since you're not setting a respiratory rate, you really don't have full control over a minute ventilation. But it may be a way to, to give a more reliable tidal volume to a patient on a spontaneous mode of breathing.
2: Right. So I think, uh, I agree. I think that if you have a patient who you know is breathing, they have a respiratory drive, it's a way to guarantee a volume for each breath and therefore barring them Stopping breathing, you will get a mandatory. You will get a guaranteed minute ventilation, that, or at least a, a, they'll take a minimum number of breaths. You'll know you get a certain tidal volume per breath. Therefore, you'll get a certain minimum minute ventilation.
0: That's right. And again, I use this mostly in patients who are who I think who I know can breathe spontaneously, but for whatever reason are very uncomfortable or very desynchronous on pressure support, which you can be as trying it as another alternative way of giving them a spontaneous respiratory mode.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The other nice thing I think about this mode and where I'll use it sometimes is with patients who do have a spontaneous drive to breathe, but have a huge pressure requirement on pressure support so in other words if i were going to put them on pressure support they might be on 25 over 5 or 30 over 5 and so uh and or they're also have some dynamic changes in their amount of pressure they need or their effort they're putting forth and so rather than adjusting their pressure support constantly putting them on volume support the pressure will adjust itself that's right i think the one thing you need to be careful about doing that and i agree i use it in that in that setting too
0: but is to make sure that the reason that they're not needing such high levels of pressure support is because their lungs are very injured. You could get because this doesn't allow you to really measure a plateau pressure. You could uh, you could conceivably get very high transpulmonary pressures on a volume on a large volume volume support mode.
2: Yep, absolutely. So certainly not a good mode for someone with ARDS as a right. cause of their low compliance. Now, um, what you can do, assuming that's not the case, is if someone has poor compliance, let's say, from some pulmonary edema, uh, chest wall rigidity, whatever it may be, and you watch their pressures as they improve, as the compliance goes down, as you diurese them, you can see their pressures that it takes on volume support to get, let's say, the 500 that you dial in will come down. And so you may watch maybe the first day it takes 25. uh, You're watching the peak pressures, they're 25 Two days later, you've taken five liters of fluid off, and now it only takes 15. And then maybe you say, oh, let's flip them to pressure support, 15 over 5, and then go down from there. Yes. Yes. Great. So the things you're going to set on volume support are an FIO2, a PEEP, and a, a, an amount of volume yeah. that you want per A pet. targeted tidal volume, Yeah. Uh, you are not setting a respiratory rate. That's the big difference between this and the first mode we talked about, the uh, adaptive pressure control. Um, but you are uh, letting the patient set the respiratory rate.
0: That's right. And you don't typically actually set a... Um, you do in that you usually set a peak pressure alarm on the ventilator. But you don't, unlike PRVC, you don't usually set a peak pressure limit on the ventilator,
2: a separate peak pressure limit
0: other than the alarm on the ventilator.
2: Right. And then we should say that one potential downside to this mode is that a patient with a high uh, drive to breathe, so for example, uh, a patient maybe with a severe metabolic acidosis who's really trying to breathe their, uh, their CO2 down because of the metabolic acidosis and they have a huge drive, the machine on volume sport will sense that as the patient not needing much support. And so will, since the patient's pulling really hard, the machine won't give them much help at all because they're going to achieve the targeted tidal volume on their own But, therefore, that patient may really tire out. That's right. That's right. All right. So let's move on and talk about um, PAV, P-A-V. And what what does PAV stand for?
0: Right. So proportional assist ventilation, or PAV, essentially this is a way of um, attempting to match the level of support that the ventilator gives with the amount of effort that the patient makes. So essentially, if a patient um, makes a respiratory effort, the machine will then give some pressure support. If the person continues to make respiratory effort, it will give more support. Um, whereas if they, if they are satisfied with the level of support that the ventilator is giving, it will stop. Um, and this is thought to be a way of making it, of making the machine just more comfortable, um, for the person because it will, uh, it will
2: give you the amount of pressure in proportion to how much you actually need or desire. And so, exactly. So this, I believe, was invented as <clears throat> as a way to try to improve synchrony and comfort on the vent. That's right. That's right. And so what does the clinician set in PAV? So you set a... PAV is a little challenging because the parameter you
0: set, you set a essentially a proportional assist number. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the percentage. That's right. Of the work of breathing. Right. And I, I will confess, I don't really understand exactly how the ventilator derives that, but you set a... Have percentage, and then theoretically, it attempts to accommodate that degree of percent of the work of breathing.
2: Right, that's my understanding too. I believe the machine, through a algorithm of some kind, obviously calculates the work of breathing, and then based on the percent you've said, it says, "Okay, if this is the work of breathing, I will support this percentage. Let's say seventy five percent of that work of breathing." Now, if The work of breathing decreases. In other words, so let's use the same example we used before. You're diuresing the patient. They have now less pulmonary edema. Therefore, they have better lung compliance. Therefore, they have less work of breathing. The work of breathing has now gone down. So 75% of a lower number, the machine will give less support than it was giving. That's right. So this is a way to actually give a – instead of, let's say, if you were doing pressure support of 15 over 5 – the machine will give 15 centimeters of water or pressure no matter how much the patient needs or wants or pulls. In PAV, the machine will decrease its support as the patient improves. That's right. That's right. And um,
0: I, I I, have not used PAV a tremendous amount. Um, I have not personally seen a huge advantage to using it. Now, that may just be personal unfamiliarity with the with the mode. Um but I, again, you know, there is there are very there are very few data to support its use. There are some data in the um, in the postoperative weaning of surgical patients, but it, it is it is weak data at best.
2: Yeah, um, I, I agree. I, so this is all kind of um, things you may see or or personal preference. One thing uh, that I do have seen on the ventilator that's nice is that it will calculate. Uh, in real time, the compliance, now how it's actually doing that is obviously through an algorithm that may have some error, but it will give you a compliance number. and so what you and a resistance number. So what you can actually see over time if you have a patient on this is hopefully improvement right. in the compliance and resistance, uh, at least the compliance of the system. So you know again, if you're if let's use the diaoresesan example, you know if you're successfully helping the patient uh, improve or if their compliance isn't changing at all, you may need to change your strategy. That's right, Yeah. Uh, now, so I'm just looking here, Things that you're, other things that you're going to enter uh, in this mode. So you're going to enter the type of tube you have, so endotracheal or tracheostomy tube, uh, the size of the tube, because obviously that's going to play into the work of breathing, is going to be the resistance based on the length and diameter of the tube. Uh, uh, you'll put a tidal volume limit, a pressure limit, uh, and then, of course, the percentage of work supported, which we already talked about. Right. All right. So uh, similarly, as we mentioned, not a lot of... Uh, Evidence uh, for this mode, but something that, if no, but for no other reason, for teaching purposes, might be interesting to try out if you have it on your ventilators and you haven't tried it because you can sort of see resistance and compliance and think about how that plays in. That's right,
0: and I, you know one of the big limitations to all of these adaptive modes is that um, there is, by definition, a lag time between where the respiratory effort is. Uh, is initiated at the level of the diaphragm and where the pressure changes begin, which are at the level of the diaphragm and the alveoli. And then that pressure change, in order to trigger any of these adaptive modes, has to be picked up by the ventilator, which could be some, at the tip of the endotracheal tube, depending on where the pressure or flow transducer is, or all the way to the ventilator circuit itself. But the point is that it takes a while for the pressure change wave or the flow, change, flow wave change to propagate from where it is initiated by the patient to where the sensor is. So even though these things try to improve synchrony, there is still a delay between the patient initiates a breath and when the machine detects the initiation of that breath.
2: Well, that actually is a great segue to another mode. So maybe we should jump to that one, and we'll come back to ASV in a second. But let's talk about NAVA, because that, I think, applies to what you were just saying. So how does NAVA address that question?
0: Right. So NAVA works, rather than using either pressure or flow as a trigger, as a detection trigger for respiratory mm-hmm. effort, NAVA... Um, or neurally adjusted ventilatory assist uses in addition to the uh, as an add-on to the mechanical ventilator a uh, an NG tube or OG tube, you can put it in either way, that has electrodes on it. And you insert this down so that it goes through the crooks of the diaphragm. And these electrodes then detect diaphragmatic electrical activity when the diaphragm contracts. So in this way, rather than having the machine detect a pressure change or a flow change, which takes time to propagate, you detect it as soon as the diaphragm begins to move. And because it's an electrical signal rather than a physical signal, it's detected much faster. And so the machine... The lag time between when the patient initiates a breath and when the machine begins to deliver the level of support is much less. Theoretically, this should improve uh, synchrony between the patient and the ventilator because the ventilator is essentially functioning just as an extension of the patient's own diaphragm.
2: Right. So, in your experience, do you think it, it actually does improve uh, synchrony? It
0: certainly decreases the lag time, um, and I think in some patients, it can it, it can uh, decrease. Um, that It can decrease dyssynchrony, <laughs> right. maybe a better way of putting it. I think the caveats to NAVA um, are, one, you need to have an intact respiratory drive um, and you need to have an intact diaphragm. Right? So the person who you're really heavily sedating for bad ARDS, probably not the right person. The person right. who has a paralyzed hemidiaphragm may not be the right person. Um, but in the, in, in the appropriate person, I think it actually can improve ventilator synchrony. The other caveat is that the, the OG tube, it has to be inserted exactly at the right place so that the diaphragm um, is captured by the electrodes on the, on the OG tube. And the electrodes cover, I don't know, about a six-inch length on the OG tube. But if it moves in or out a little bit, you may lose capture. Now, the ventilator has a system to alert you if you lose capture. Right. But that is you – know, you, it has been my experience that you do need to frequently reposition the, uh,
2: the gastric tube to make sure that you're actually uh, picking up the diaphragm. Interesting. Okay. Now, what would be kind of uh, – give, give us an example of a patient you might use this mode of.
0: So I think someone who has uh, chronic neuromuscular weakness um, is a reasonable person to think of this. I think the person who is a long, you know, someone who has bad COPD and or a bad obstructive airway disease and is a, a long-term wean from the ventilator, I think that's the kind of person who this um, is potentially useful in.
2: Okay, great. So uh, that's NAVA, uh, really quite a different and intriguing mode because of the way it senses, and really set apart by the way it senses the patient's effort. So let's go back now. We had talked about PAV, and then let's talk about ASV. Uh, because ASV is, is in a, a kind of related to PAV.
0: Yeah, right. So ASV or Adaptive Support Ventilation, um, I think this is probably best described as a weaning mode um, uh, for someone who, and I think most of the literature, on it, someone who comes out of the operating room and, you know, they gradually wake up and you want them to do more of the work of breathing on their own. So the way that ASV works is that you set a tidal volume, I'm sorry, you set a minute ventilation and you set a percentage of how much, you want the ventilator to contribute to that minute ventilation, and then it will do whatever it needs to to hit that minute ventilatory target. Um, and you know this is perfect in the patient who is coming out and you know, they're, still, they're still sleepy, they're not really breathing, their own ventilator is going to do all the work for them. They start waking up and, t- and taking their own breaths, the machine will back off on how much support it gives um, and how much of that minute ventilation it attempts to deliver, and eventually you wean that all the way down. And the patient's doing all the work of breathing on their own. Um, and I think this is uh, this is also a potentially very intriguing mode, if for no other reason than that you know, if you can automatically wean someone, you know, standard postoperative patient, maybe you'll get them off the ventilator faster than if ha- that the
2: clinician has to continue to make all the adjustments themselves. Right. And so the few studies that have been uh, done on this mode, at least a few of them, have shown exactly that. So in post-op cardiac surgery patients, for example, some increased. Uh, efficiency, some lowered weaning time, faster weaning time that 's right. I will say you know we we
0: have used this in our post operative cardiac patients on occasion. The one thing we have run into trouble sometimes is because the machine targets a minute ventilation or a percentage of a minute ventilation, it might think that a very rapid respiratory rate with very small tidal volumes is. Sufficient, so long as it achieves that target, when in fact the patient 's doing that because they 're really uh, dysnic or they really don 't have the strength to breathe on their own yet, right, so you do need to pay it 's not just an autopilot weaning, you have to pay attention to what the patient actually looks like on it
2: right, and so the way this works is the machine will calculate the what it thinks is the best respiratory rate and tidal volume based on the patient 's mechanics, so it is also like PaV measuring compliance and resistance and deciding based on this patient and the the you'll put in the patient's height weight uh gender uh FiO2 peep and then the percentage of minute ventilation you want but based on the height the weight and then the the compliance and resistance that it's measuring it's going to say okay here's the ideal respiratory rate and tidal volume that's right that's right so now one thing i think that always comes up with this mode is let's say that you set the uh, it to have a hundred percent. You say, okay, so I want you to support a hundred percent of this patient's minute ventilation. But an hour later, the patient is fully awake and able to take all of their requirement of ventilation on their own. Will the machine still provide a hundred percent, or will it? Or when we say a hundred percent, does that mean if needed, it will provide up to one hundred percent?
0: Yes, that's a great question. It's the the answer is the if needed. That if, if the patient is able to maintain their minute ventilation on their own, the machine will let them do that. But if uh, um, if, if the patient then drops off again, then the, the machine will kick
2: back up into support and get them back to the target area. Right. And then if you're looking at the machine with a patient on ASV, what's nice is that there's this kind of set of parameters down in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, and the machine will basically tend. Those things are things like what's got, there's a percentage of spontaneous breaths, um, what else is on there? Oh, and
0: the minute ventilation itself, um, the size, the spontaneous breaths. I mean, there's a, there's a reasonable amount of data
2: there that help you determine whether you're adequately ventilating the patient. Right. And it's got these little bars. And so what happens is if the patient is meeting extubation requirements in each of those categories, so for example, obviously you'd want them to be taking all their breaths spontaneously if they're going to be extubated, then that bar will be white. It'll be down in the, in the, in the zone, extubation yeah. zone. Um, and if they have all of the bars for all the parameters in the extubation zone, then it'll start counting for you. So you can look at the vent, and maybe it'll say 18 minutes. The patient has been extubatable for 18 minutes. Obviously, you're going to want to use your clinical judgment there in addition to trusting the machine. But it does give you a nice idea that, according to the machine, they're meeting extubation criteria. That's right. That's right.
0: And I think I, I think there is some val- there is potentially some value in these modes in the – uncomplicated patient with no lung disease who you're just waking up postoperatively. I think their utility drops substantially in the sicker patients, the more complex patients, the patients who have lung disease. I think the data are the the data that the machines provide in those patients and the calculations they run in those patients
2: are, I think, less reliable. Absolutely. And so another important thing to, to keep in mind here is that the machine is calculating the minute ventilation what minute ventilation should be based on ideal weight and based on the calculated dead space, based on the patient's height and weight, it is, has no idea if the patient is septic or on CVVH or anything. And so uh, a septic patient, obviously, is going to, have a, to need a higher minute ventilation than a uh, just a typical post op patient
0: that's right or it has no idea of what the patient's actual dead space ventilation is in the uh, you know a patient with bad uh, emphysematous lung disease um, or bad obstructive lung disease so i mean but i, I think there's a real role for understanding these modes How much that translates into clinical
2: utility, I think, is another question entirely. Absolutely. So if you are going to use ASV, what you want to do is take a look, and the instruction manual will will tell you, for example, with a septic patient to start off, you would want to start off at something like 120% of support, meaning that the machine will support 120% of what it thinks the minute ventilation should be because you have to take into account on your own for that septic patient. As they improve and are less septic and doing more work on their own, you can turn down that percent. All right. Anything else for ASV that you think is important? No, I don't. know I think we've hit the high points of it. Great. All right. So, uh, how about APRV? What does that stand for? All right. So airway pressure
0: release ventilation, APRV, um, also known on some ventilators as bilevel. I think really technically the only ventilator that can do APRV are the Dragers. Mm-hmm. This is a. This is um, and it's an interesting mode because it combines both. By, both a bi-level pressure support ventilation with inverse ratio ventilation. So rather than so a conventional on a conventional ventilator mode, you're only at an inspiratory pressure or a high pressure for a relatively small portion of the respiratory cycle, and most of the time you're spent in the expiratory phase with a lower pressure. APRV turns this around, where you are sustained at a high pressure, and then intermittently it decompresses or drops the pressure. Um, down to a very to a very low or even zero pressure. And this is when, and then immediately raises it back up to your high pressure. Um, and exhalation occurs and CO2 removal occurs during those periodic
2: decompressions. Right. And so you might, for example, in a typical patient, have a one to three, uh, at least one to two, if not one to three, where you're spending twice or three times as much time exhaling as you are inhaling. Or in other words, you are spending two or three times as much time at your low pressure, which in a conventional setting is PEEP, right? That's right. going to be your low pressure right. as compared to your high pressure, which is, would be whatever your inspiratory pressure on pressure control or whatever the pressure you reach on a volume control when you're putting in your volume.
0: That's right. And the, the thing about real APRV is that the machine has valves in it that allow you to spontaneously breathe throughout the entire cycle. So you can take spontaneous breaths at the high pressure, you could take spontaneous breath in the low pressure. In practice, you're really only taking spontaneous breaths at the high pressure because the time at that low pressure is so small that there's right. not a whole lot of time right. to fit a breath in
2: there. Exactly. So while you might be a 1 to 2 or 1 to 3 in a typical mode here, you are typically at something like 4 to 1. That's right. That's right, and so it's it's both inverse and and you're spending a much more time uh, at a high level. Now, people will say, I don't know. Tell me what your experience is, Scott. That because you can breathe at any point in the cycle, it may be more comfortable for patients.
0: That's right. I mean, it I, it is a mode which is impossible to be asynchronous with because you can breathe whenever you want to throughout the cycle, um, and you know that that may be an advantage. Uh, I'm not. I, I don't know that it is. There are really very few data to support the use of
2: APRV, um, though it's become a very popular mode. Um, but there may be something to that. And what what uh, kind of um, scenario is it popular in?
0: Right. So I think the most commonly used – so the true APRV aficionados will say it can be used in any lung disease. Um, I think the most commonly used indication for it, though, is, is, is in ARDS. And particularly, I think most commonly – um, although we do not use it for this indication uh, in really bad ARDS or really severe ARDS. And the notion is because you're spending so much time at that high level of, of uh, pressure that you really recruit the lung and maximally utilize um, lung volume <laughs> rather than just ventilating a tiny portion of the lung. Um, it is all, Because the pressure is relatively constant apart from these periodic uh, decompressions, you also get a very – you get not only a very uniform inflation, at least in theory, but you don't get the tidal inflation, hyperinflation, hypoinflation that is thought to be injurious to the lungs. Now, all of this is theory. There are very, As I said, there are no data um, uh, comparing APRV to conventional mechanical ventilation and severe ARDS my experience has been APRB will reliably improve oxygenation because you will get recruitment on these very high airway pressures. But I I don't know that it's a better form of ventilating an ARDS patient. I don't personally think it is, but that is my own
2: opinion. There are plenty of people who think it is. Sure. And so some people are going to be out there thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. You just said you spend all this time at high pressure, and I've always been taught pressure is bad in ARDS. So why is this not clearly bad? That's right. So what uh,
0: the, the things that are thought to be injurious in ARDS, one is um, one is certainly pressure, meaning that you're hyperinflating and over-distending the lung, but also the rapid cycling between high pressures and low pressures, the sheer stress that you develop there is thought to be injurious. Another thing that's thought to be injurious are the lungs closing during the expiratory phase and becoming atelectatic, so-called atelecta trauma. This rapid closing and opening of the lungs is thought to be injurious. Well, APRV tries to avoid that by keeping by attempting to keep all of the airways, all of the alveoli open all of the time, so you don't get that sheer stress
2: of repeated opening, closing, opening, closing. Um, so would you say that the short amount of time at a lower pressure doesn't give time for the alveoli to close? Is that, that,
0: that is that is the notion. And um, the, uh, a lot of the people who have done some some animal model work on this say that really – the only volume you drain during those short decompressions, which are very short, like only about a second long, is really only large airway volume or tracheal mm-hmm. bronchial volume. It's not actually you don't there's not actually time enough to drain the alveoli. Yeah. Now I don't actually know if that's true or not, um, but that is at least the theory.
2: Yeah. Great. Okay. So. Things you set on APRV uh, are you're going to set a, a, high, a P high, so the pressure at the at the high level where you're going to spend most of your time. That's right. A P low, that's right. which would be equivalent of a peep at a normal mode, right? It's what the pressure is going to be when you do drop down briefly.
0: That, that's true. Although many people will say you should set the P low to zero. And you never, because of the time constant of emptying the lungs, you never actually hit that pressure of zero. But okay. many people will actually set that
2: P low to zero. Okay. So you're going to set AP low, which sounds like normally you're going to set at zero. A P high at whatever you're going to be. What, what would be a normal P high to uh, start with? Anywhere from 25 to
0: 35 centimeters of water would be probably a starting on the lower end. That'd be starting, but it would be a reasonable
2: P high to use. Great, and then you're going to set a T high and a T low, right? So the T high being the um, the time you'll spend at the high pressure, and the T low the time you'll spend at the low pressure. That's right, and this translates obviously to the to your inspiratory-expiratory ratio, right? And so, what would you start with for a T high, T low? Uh,
0: You know, a reasonable T high might be anywhere, it might be four seconds and a T low of one second. Some people might do longer, like six seconds and one second. Um, Some people might do longer than that.
2: (laughs) Right, okay. So, you know, you start and you adjust. And what would, so, you know, this is going to be very new for a lot of people when you're doing a regular mode of ventilation and you, let's say you're doing SIMV or you're doing AC. You look and you get a blood gas and you see that the patient is hypercarbic, so you turn up the respiratory rate. So you're going to adjust your respiratory rate and or tidal volume based on based on your carbon dioxide levels, and you're going to adjust your oxygenation, obviously your oxygen based on your oxygenation. What about an APRV? What would make you say, oh, I need to change a mode, uh, I need to change a setting?
0: All right. So it, it gets a little trickier in APRV, um, and I think it, it, it is not as immediately intuitive uh, how you would manipulate the controls. For someone who is, in general, if someone is more hypoxemic, you would use you would put the the airway pressure even higher. Um, If someone is hypercarbic, probably you want more frequent decompressions to make sure you're actually eliminating gas and getting fresh gas. Um, And this gets into another another point that is worth thinking of is that not all carbon dioxide transfer is due to bulk transport of gas. There is some diffusion, and so even if you're not actually emptying all the alveoli if you're just replacing the gas in the trachea and the the airways with fresh gas that doesn't have any carbon dioxide in it, you will get some diffusive clearance of
2: um, carbon dioxide from the alveoli. Okay. So you're still going to adjust based on your carbon dioxide levels, but it sounds like the adjustment you might make would be increasing the frequency of of your P-low. That's right. Would you increase the T low, or would that kind of be counterintuitive because you're going to end up with more atelectasis? That tends to be counterproductive.
0: Um, it, it is true that at a at a longer T low, you will get rid of more bulk gas. Um, but in general, people try to in general, when people are using this for acute lung injury, you try to maximize the time at the T high. And so, generally, when people if you, to get rid of more carbon dioxide, people will increase the number of decompressions rather than increase the time spent at the low pressure.
2: Great. All right. And so because also you said this is often used for ARDS, we're more concerned with oxygenation. Often we'll let these patients' CO2 rise quite quite high to protect the lungs. And so it may be that we don't do anything uh, with a patient who's hypercarbic with a PCO2 of 60 or 70.
0: That's right. That's right. As long as their pH is within a reasonable range,
2: yeah. Right. Okay, great. Anything else for APRV that you think we should talk about?
0: No, I think the thing to be – that to. Uh, to emphasize about APRV is that it it is not a proven mode of mechanical ventilation. I mean, it may be. Someone may do do a study that shows that it is superior to conventional mechanical ventilation in severe hypoxemic respiratory failure, but for now, those data do not exist. And so uh, I personally do not use APRV very frequently.
2: Great. So let's go from there and say that you've got a patient with severe ARDS. Some You've tried your regular uh, volume control ventilation. Um, you're on a high level of PEEP. You've got uh, a fair amount of, um, uh, you're at 100% FiO2, and you're still hypoxemic. So some people might try APRV. You don't, you're not uh, as big of a fan, so you're not going to do that. What, what would you do for this patient? Right. So I
0: think the things that I tend to do for a patient who is severely hypoxemic um, are in sequence, uh, neuromuscular blockade, and then prone positioning.
2: And what what do you use for your neuromuscular blockade?
0: So typically we use vecuronium. Um, the data are with cisatricurium, yep. but there aren't any real re- there aren't any. There's not a real reason to think that it's a uh, a drug specific specific effect rather than just an overall effect of neuromuscular blockade. Okay. Um, I typically do use my threshold of a, a P to F ratio, a partial pressure of oxygen to FiO2 ratio of less than 150 is my threshold for thinking about um, neuromuscular blockade. Uh, and if, you, if I can get away with doing it in bolus dosing rather than a continuous infusion, I will do that. Um, but if you have to do a continuous infusion, that's okay too. And I typically paralyze people before I think about proning them, um, mostly because in some sense it is easier and it is faster. So yeah. if you really are, you know, if you're up against a wall and you really need to get control of someone quickly, it is faster to paralyze them,
2: but it is also a lot easier to prone a paralyzed person than a non-paralyzed Absolutely. person. And so just to put this in context, when, when Scott says that he will use a P to F ratio of 50, that 150, of 150, sorry, of 150, you're talking about somebody who, uh, has a PAO2 of 150 on hundred percent oxygen or, you know, worse than 150. So anywhere from 150 on down, which is an a, to a gradient of about 450 to 500.
0: That's right. These are patients with very significantly impaired oxygenation, um, but I think there are a lot. You know, there are a there are a lot of patients. I think we underdiagnose hypoxemic respiratory failure to this extent, mostly because you know the easy math is to do take the PaO2 and divide it by 1.0, right? right. 100% oxygen. But you know, you could have a PDF of uh, of less than 150 if your PO2 is 70. On fifty percent oxygen, right? That's a PO2 of less than one hundred and fifty. So right. uh, there are, uh, I think, there probably are a lot of patients that we we don't necessarily recognize how severely impaired their oxygenation is.
2: I think that's absolutely right. So one one lesson from this going forward for people out there is is think about it. If you've got someone, you should be thinking that a normal person on fifty percent FiO2 should have a PaO2 of above three hundred. Okay. So if it's seventy, if it's eighty, if it's even one hundred and fifty. They're, they have some serious lung issues going on. That's right. And, and I will say,
0: too, just to emphasize that using both either, you know, either neuromuscular blockade or prom- these are in patients with ARDS, right? So the person who is transiently hypoxemic because they've got a mucus plug, right. not the person you want to paralyze unless there's some other reason to do it. Absolutely. I mean, these are patients who have diffuse lung injury. Absolutely. Um, uh, diffuse bilateral infiltrates, less than seven days, an acute uh, insult. I mean, you know, there is a,
2: this is a specific subset of patients. Absolutely. So that's a really important point. We're not, we, we don't want people going out there paralyzing and proning someone because they, in, in, for an instant, drop down uh, to a low PDF ratio. That's right. So we've got someone with severe ARDS, PDF ratio below 150. We've now paralyzed them. They're still hypoxemic. So now you're going to prone them? Right.
0: So then usually my next, if if they don't get better in about, you know, it depends on the severe on the degree of severity of their uh, oxygen impairment. Um, but in general, if they don't get better within about six hours after neuromuscular blockade, you know, me, and by better meaning their PDF has gotten better to the point where I've been able to come down on the ventilator settings, or their I've been, their plateau pressure has dropped, all these different injurious things, then the next step would be, in my mind, is putting them in prone
2: position. Okay. Now, when you do that, do you have a set method in the, uh, now this is in the MICU because I know, uh, because I also work in the cardiac ICU with you. We don't do it there.
0: That's right. It's very tough to prone someone who's had a sternotomy or someone who's got a big open
2: belly. I mean, yeah. you know, th- these are typically it's gonna be medical patients who you, who yeah. you prone. And so do you guys have a protocol? Uh, how do you do it and how long do you leave them prone?
0: We do. So we do have a protocol. Um, and, uh, it generally takes about five to seven nurses to do it right. And you put the, ber- the bed in reverse Trendelenburg. Um, and you kind of put the patient in an alternating swimming crawl position, right? So one arm up over the head, one arm down. Then you oscillate that every few hours to keep them and turn their head so they don't get skin breakdown. The data with prone positioning suggests that the longer you keep them prone, the better your outcomes are. So in general, for the first session, we tend to keep them prone for at least 18 hours. Um, longer if they if it doesn't look like we can safely um, re-supine them. Mm-hmm. Um, but longer durations of prone positioning are better. And I think it's important to note that prone positioning reliably improves oxygenation, but that's probably not why it is protective in bad ARDS or is life-saving in bad ARDS. It does a number of other things. One, it homogenizes the distribution of ventilation. So rather than over-inflating and injuring segments of the lung, you get a more homogeneous distribution, and hopefully you don't over-distend any one particular segment of the lung. The other thing is that actually it tends to improve right ventricular function, um, and there are all sorts of reasons why this may be, but there is, have been at least some studies show, suggesting that the benefit of prone positioning is limited, or not limited, but is focused in patients whose cardiac output improves when you prone them hmm, interesting. Um, due to better right ventricular function. Uh, so I think it's not you know it's a mistake to say this is better just because it makes oxygenation better. Right. There are a lot of things you do to make oxygenation better. Right. This is some other effect, and it's probably a decreased lung injury and maybe a better, uh, and maybe an improvement in cardiac function that is, has made it protective.
2: That's really interesting. All right, and so the at least the one big New England Journal article, the ProSiva trial uh, out of France, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, did this and uh, found a mortality benefit. That's right, and a, and a very significant mortality benefit. Right. And so uh, this is something that um, is probably, as you say, actually life-saving compared to some of these other ventilator modes that we've talked about, which uh, have no data to suggest that they actually improve mortality. That's right. So prone positioning, neuromuscular blockade, to, along with low tidal volume ventilation, probably the three things that have been more or less definitively shown to improve mortality in severe ARDS.
0: I think that's right. I mean, and so when I'm looking at the person who's got bad ARDS, low tidal volume ventilation is number one. And then if they cross that threshold of a PDF less than 150, so really technically moderate to severe, because really severe ARDS doesn't technically begin until you get to a PDF less than 100. Um, so they're in that moderate to severe range. Right, right. Um, uh, but then neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning. I think there are other things that we should think about. Obviously, I mean, trying to maintain negative fluid balance and not get people volume overloaded, treating their underlying infection. All these things are also very important, too. But the real things that have been shown to
2: have benefit are those that triumvirate of things, low total volume, neuromuscular blockade, and prone positioning. Absolutely. Now, the other thing we should say about prone positioning is people out there may be thinking, that's crazy, you're going to lose all your lines, your tube's going to come out. So at least in the Proceva study, they did not have any increased rate of complications. And my, my guess is uh, you can tell us whether you guys see any of that. I think that in centers that get used to doing this and are well-trained and the nurses know what they're doing, you probably are pretty safe.
0: Yeah, no, there's definitely a learning curve. Um, but uh, in, in a center that is experienced with this, it's it's very safe. The You do have to watch tubes. Obviously, you've got to watch lines. Make sure you don't accidentally dislodge things. Uh, one of the bigger things you have to watch is skin and just make sure you're rotating people's faces so they don't get facial skin breakdown. Um, but in general, it is very well tolerated
2: and is very safe, which yeah. is a rarity among medical interventions. <laughs> yeah. And I will say that, that while we don't do it here in our surgical ICUs uh, much, if at all, uh, some of you out there may be thinking that you do. And indeed, there are centers where the, in the surgical ICUs, even with abdominal surgery, even with uh, cardiac surgery patients, they will prone. And uh, it's been shown uh, to be safe. So while, while there are worries about it, it is certainly doable. All right. So lastly, let's talk about uh, the ventilation of a patient on ECMO. Um, how do you like to think about that, Scott?
0: Right. So and these are, I think, patients, um, for the most part, we talk, we think about this in the context of patients who are put on ECMO for respiratory support rather than for cardiac support. Um, and so I want to focus the discussion on respiratory ECMO because how to ventilate a patient with cardiac on ECMO, on veno-arterial ECMO for cardiac support, that can be a little trickier depending on cannulation sites. Yeah. Um, but for the patient on veno-venous ECMO for respiratory support, then you have to think to yourself, well, why am I putting this person on ECMO? Is it a salvage maneuver because the person's got refractory hypoxemia? Um, is it an attempt to spare the lungs from further injury? Um, or What is the indication for ECMO? And I think in many cases, it is a combination of both. I can't oxygenate the person anywhere else, but I also want to
2: protect the lungs And indeed, actually, let's back up one second, because some people may be thinking, wait, 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 guys, you were talking about severe ARDS, and you stopped at prone positioning. So would ECMO be the step you'd go to if after proning and after low tidal volume and after uh, neuromuscular blockade, you still have refractory hypoxemia?
0: So for me, yes, that is where ECMO runs in my algorithm, that if I can't get control of someone's oxygenation with those three things, and also with a get control of their plateau pressures. So really for me, the three indications for ECMO are one refractory hypoxemia, despite um, optimum ventilatory management, including low tidal volumes, titrating peep, uh, neuromuscular blockade and prone positioning, or high alveolar pressures, high plateau pressures, despite low tidal volume ventilation, Mm -hmm. titrating peep, paralyzing proning because both paralysis and proning tend to lower plateau pressures right. too. Um, or refractory hypercarbia with a pH less than, you know, 7.1, 7.05, uh, and an inability to raise your tidal volume or raise your respiratory rate because of con- uh, concern for injuring the lungs, right. um, as discussed above. So those are really my three indications for considering ECMO. Um, Then you think about reasons not to consider ECMO, right? And I think the biggest thing, the biggest reason to consider not to consider ECMO is whether or not it is recoverable. Yeah. If you don't think the patient is recoverable, meaning that this is not an acute lung injury that you think will resolve, then I wouldn't offer ECMO. Um, Similarly, if the person has end-stage lung disease, you know, bad CF, bad IPF, and they're not a transplant candidate, you're not thinking about bridging them to transplant, then I wouldn't offer ECMO to those patients.
2: Yeah, I think that's huge because once someone is on ECMO, especially if they're awake, it can be incredibly hard to make the decision to turn it off.
0: That's right. That's right. And I think it, it is best to, if you don't think that the patient is recoverable, and it may not be because they've just got pulmonary injury, you know, maybe the person who has uh, a, a terrible brain injury or who has you know metastatic, widely metastatic disease that is not going to get better, those probably aren't the patients we should be considering for extracorporeal support. Absolutely. All
2: right, so now let's turn back to how to ventilate them. Right. so, so, so assuming, on, you, yeah. assuming you do go <laughs> Exactly. Now you're on ECMO. So what are you going to think about in terms of setting the ventilator?
0: Right. So it, there, and this is another area where there are no data to guide how we do this. Um, there have been a lot of very interesting papers, uh, particularly out of Italy, out of Luce- um, and now recently out of Germany, by Luciano Gattinoni's group that have tried to quantitate what the injurious stimulation of ventilation is and how exactly you should set the ventilator on patients with ECMO. I think the majority of centers, um, use a ultra low tidal volume strategy. And you could do this either with pressure control ventilation, which is what we tend to do here, or with volume control ventilation, targeting tidal volumes less than four cc's per kilo. Mm -hmm. Um, I think most people, though not all people, think that maintaining some degree of tidal ventilation is good, um, so that you have some wiggle of the lungs rather mm-hmm. than nothing at all, although that that opinion is not uniform. I think most people also think that maintaining a, a reasonable amount of PEEP to maintain recruitment is also good, though that feeling is not uniform as well. Most centers, or not most, many centers will use a PEEP of at least 10 to 15 centimeters of water to mm-hmm. try to maintain some degree of recruitment yep and then use a little pressure control or a little volume control on top of that to maintain some um, uh, some cyclic ventilation yeah generally people will decrease the respiratory rate to four breaths per minute 10 breaths per minute um, again just to maintain some cyclic ventilation mm-hmm. and the ECMO circuit really does most of the work as far as get rid, getting rid of co2
2: right. Right. So, And that's the key for people who maybe aren't familiar with ECMO is that, and we're not, we certainly could do a whole podcast, and maybe we will at another point on ECMO, but the, the key here is that the ECMO circuit, ideally, is both doing the oxygenation and the ventilation. So the movement, the use of the ventilator, for the most part, as Scott said, is to keep the lungs moving, keep them somewhat inflated, uh, but certainly not necessary. And indeed, there are some centers, as you alluded to, Columbia I know is one, where they're working towards extubation for people on ECMO, if at all possible, meaning there may not be any movement of the lungs or only whatever spontaneous movement the patient can generate. And uh, all of the oxygenation and ventilation is done by the circuit. So uh, as you say, not a lot of data, certainly a lot of debate over what the best way to do this is. But I think it's probably fair to say that the most common method at the moment is as you said ultra low tidal volume somewhere in the maybe 2 to 4 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight that's compared to 6 as our target for uh, severe ARDS when patients are not on ECMO right
0: so my and again this is you know <laughs> i'm not sure that if you ask me to back this up i could do it with a sure. 100% uh, reliability my typical approach is to use pressure control at a rate of something less than 10 An inspiratory pressure of ten, and a peep of ten to fifteen, and then see where that gets me. How about your FiO two? So FiO two, you know, traditionally we have dropped this as quickly as we can to you know forty percent, thirty percent, even twenty one percent to try to avoid hyperoxic injury. Um, There have been some interesting papers out of Luciano Gattinoni's lab uh, that suggest you should do this. More slowly, Mm -hmm. essentially, to prevent absorptive atelectasis. Yep. Um, So I I don't know what the we I I I like to try to get it as low as I can, Um, but if you do it too fast, if you drop it too fast, you may end up getting more atelectasis. In a lot of patients with really bad ARDS, you actually sometimes need some degree of ventilatory support in addition to veno-venous ECMO in order to maintain systemic oxygenation.
2: So. I think a a, a good rule of thumb is to take what you can get. (laughs) So as we said, with VA ECMO, there may be some other complications and reasons you want to think about uh, how you set your oxygenation, but we're not going to get into that now. Um, Scott, this has been great. Anything else you think we need to cover in terms of uh, what we've talked about today?
0: No, I think this has been a really good discussion of these alternative ventilatory modes. Um, And I think that's the important thing to remember. These are alternative ventilatory ventilatory modes. They're not superior ventilatory modes.
2: Well said. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and Scott, thanks so much for coming back on the show. We'll be, uh, thinking about some other opportunities to have you back. We may, uh, we could think about doing something on ECMO. We could think about doing something on, um, really getting, digging into ARDS, but we'll talk about all of that. We may also get together to do some more basic, uh, critical care, uh, podcasts as well. So thanks so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. That's all for today. This was a long one, but I think we covered some really great ground. And I hope this was useful for everyone. Remember, check out the website, ACRAC.com, accrac.com You can leave comments there. This should be ripe for comments. Let us know what modes you use the most and what you like to use them for. Uh, if you are aware of some evidence for any of these modes, we'd love to hear about that too. And there you can, of course, uh, join the mailing list in the upper right-hand corner of the website, download all the episodes. You can also get them on iTunes. And you can always email me if you'd like, acrac at ACRAC.com, A-C-C-R-A-C at accrac.com right, for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Scott Stevens, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
1: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.